The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Sportbox. Welcome to the program this Monday morning. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq closed their worst week in over a month as risk-off sentiment returns ahead of this week's US CPI print. And investors heed the Fed's warning that there's more work to be done to bring down inflation. Weaker investor sentiment spilling over into the Asian session with Japan's Nikkei leading losses as investors gauge whether Kazuo Ueda's prospective nomination for BOJ governor could represent a pivot in the country's ultra-loose monetary policy. Uh, The US military shoots down a fourth flying object in North American airspace in just over a week whilst Washington blacklists six Chinese firms, it says, have links to Beijing's suspected spy balloon. And jubilation for the Kansas City Chiefs as they defeat the Philadelphia Eagles to clinch Super Bowl 57. The big winners, though, are the US TV networks as ad spending hits an all-time high. Right, very good morning. I hope you all had a, a wonderful and refreshing and calm weekend as well. But um, you have a bit of a conundrum, ladies and gentlemen. Your conundrum is what do you do with your long positions that you've held and that have made you quite a bit of money up until last week? Because the fact of the matter is, we did have those September, October lows from the recent rally. And my goodness me, what a solid performance the market has put on, especially some of these big US indices uh, since then. But yesterday saw the big, uh, big one, yesterday, last week saw the biggest weekly declines since the start of the year. In, in fact, since uh, a couple of months back as well. Uh, and the problem is with the Nasdaq last week losing 2.4%. In fact, we can go on to the uh, markets from last week. Why don't we just go straight there? The Nasdaq losing in total 2.4% last week. The S&P uh, losing 1.1%. And the Dow, actually the Dow was flat, but that was partly because of the oil stocks and the fact that WTI and Brent had such a solid rally. The question is now, and technically there are all kinds of things going on. Jeff and I were looking at Fibonacci retracement levels, no less. We were looking at uh, key support levels, which have been breached, such as 4,100, only mildly at the moment, on the S&P as well. Uh, and the question is, uh, is there something going on that actually you need to be very cognizant of? Because in the treasury market, uh, absolutely, we're seeing some of the biggest inversions we've seen in decades, 4.5% on the two-year, the 10-year trading at 3.7 as well. So the inversion there is the deepest since 1981, which as I'm sure you're all aware by now, uh, could could well signal if the market's right, and goodness knows the market's got it wrong many, many times, uh, a deepening recession at some stage because the Fed remaining quite hawkish in the short term, sending those two-year rates up and the underlying down, uh, and of course then thinking, hang on a second, maybe they'll have to reverse course quite quickly, and that's what the 10-year is telling us there. Dollar crosses, well, the dollar put on ground last week as well. You can see the pound abating. I think we got up to 124 in our recent high on the pound, didn't we? Uh, We certainly got up to 109 on the euro in the recent high. Uh, and the dollar gain against the yen got down to 129 recently as well. So you can see here that the dollar was back in dollar index, uh, putting on last week uh, 0.6 of 1%. 
But there is good news, ladies and gentlemen. You will learn a lot more about what is going on economically this week. There is a data dump pretty much every single day, but the days you really need to pay attention to are Tuesday, where we get the latest CPI print, and I think everything is hanging on there, uh, whether we can see a 6.2 headline figure, a 5.4 core figure, as opposed to 6.5 and 5.7 previously for those two, respectively. Retail sales, very important on Wednesday, and then producer prices on Thursday, to name but a few. Now, I did mention that the energy prices did put on a solid old rally last week as well. Again, I mean, in days of yore, Russia saying we're going to cut half a million barrels a day, potentially, might have sent us up north of $100 a barrel. But actually, yes, oil prices did go up last week, but we're still pretty much in the comfort zone, I would suggest, for both consumers and producers, uh, given where we're currently trading. Yes, last week, the WTI price put on 8.6% and Brent uh, put on 8.1%. But as you can see, some of that fury in the price just come off a little bit. Again, less bang for the buck, perhaps, from OPEC plus when we get those kind of protestations. Uh, Asian indices look like this. What have we got? We've got the Nikkei losing nine tenths of one percent and Jeff uh, uh, pontificating already in the headlines about Oeda-san and what he means over at the Bank of Japan, if indeed he is going to be the successor uh, to the current incumbent. Shanghai Composite putting on seven tenths of one percent. But lots going on. I've, I've alluded to some of it. But more importantly, how was your weekend? Uh, it was lovely. Did you Thank watch you this thing called the Super Bowl? Uh, I didn't. No. I watched the Six Nations so instead. Did I. Yeah. <laughs> so, so did I. So that was good. Um, and I think the teams that um, uh, look in good shape demonstrated they are in good shape. And England put in an OK performance, I think, it against okay. Italy. It was OK. I mean, the yeah. thing is, uh, as I'm sure a lot of European viewers are more interested in Our uh, US viewers will tone out now. But, but I think the, uh, the Italians are far better than they've ever been. Yes. Uh, and... Um, what were they? There was some very, very good performance from them. Uh, I think definitely so. Um, US investors are increasingly betting on higher rates for longer. Pricing in the Fed fund futures market shows rates are expected to top 5% in July. That's later than was expected uh, last week. When a peak of around 5% was seen in May, one rate cut is now expected this year, down from two last week. The shift comes after a blockbuster jobs report showed the US added more than half a million jobs in January. Uh, Plenty more to digest in the week ahead in Europe. Today, finance ministers meet in Brussels. Uh, we've got some key data Tuesday with GDP prints from the EU and Japan, as well as the latest US CPI reading. Wednesday sees UK inflation data. The US PPI reading is due on Thursday. And then we round out the week with French CPI and UK retail sales. And sprinkled throughout, we've got earnings due from the likes of Barclays, Heineken, Caring, Renault, and standard chartered. But you were alive in 1970, weren't you? Just about? 1970, 71? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, for the, you, not for the entirety of 1970. Do you remember a British science fiction series? <laughs> Almost certainly. That ran to 26 episodes. It was shown on ITV. It was produced right. in, in the UK, I think. Right. It was basically about... Blake's, not Blake 7, was it? UFO. Okay. UF, do you, you don't remember UFO? No. And it, so the so the whole thrust, <laughs> the, the the premise here was that you know a a a sort of um, global government defence organisation was uh, trying to prevent unidentified flying objects from aliens yeah. from coming and taking over the earth. Oh wow! So so <laughs> all this stuff we've got about the markets this week 
and we'll be focused on a lot of data points, obviously, the, yes. big, the big CPI on Tuesday and yes. so on and so forth. And yet, nagging away at the markets and nagging away at the confidence will be all these remarkable stories about things being shot down over right. different parts of the United yeah. States. I'll, I'll have a pound review, they're not <clears throat> UFOs. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I, I might take, take a pound of my a, a guinea <laughs> of my hard-earned fortune yes. um, that um, that it is not a UFO. Because right. we had, funny enough, I had this debate with producer yeah. David today. He said, "Oh, okay. I put UFOs in." I was like, "They're right. not UFOs. They know exactly. They are FOs, but they're not UFOs, yeah. are they? They know Absolutely. exactly what they are, don't they? Yes. You wouldn't shoot down a UFO if you thought there was a Martian invasion, would you? Probably not. No." But who would be the person, the who, who would be the representative of the planet that you would push for? Will forward? Smith. Always Will Smith. Always Will Smith. It's not going to be Tom Cruise, is it? Are you talking about like real people? Yeah. Like, no, no. Uh, you know, the, the alien invasion comes and uh, no, just use- the representative of humankind who is sent forward. Oh, oh David, Donald David Attenborough. Wouldn't be Donald Trump, then, I guess. No? <laughs> I don't know. David Attenborough probably David, for that. David but if Attenborough. you're going to shoot it down, you want Will Smith, don't you? I, guess I mean, he's too, got four with a with a big cigar. Is that <laughs> how it goes? Um, and then just to punch the alien thereafter. Yeah. Have we got anything smart to say about the markets? Yes. Yes, I have actually. So I mentioned uh, um, the U.S. markets had a fifty percent Fibonacci retracement of the bear market losses up to forty two hundred, which acted yep. as a key resistance level. Uh, now, perhaps sentiment swinging the other way, forty one hundred, looking like a support level, which may have just been lost as well. Um, very interesting. And this is from our friends over at Long view economics talking about various indicators and one of them is actually the retail investor and, and i hate to say it the retail investor very often at the top of the markets is an inverse indicator as well yep. um, bearishness amongst retail investors has fallen sharply over the course of recent weeks and is now at its lowest level since the start of market weakness in january 2022 therein lies the problem slightly i'm afraid uh, the, bear, the retail investor very often the last person to spot that things have changed um, and that old uh, Fibonacci retracement story uh, uh, rears its head once again. You well, know, I mentioned it was just it. a nickname, Fibonacci, right, for the Italian uh, yes. mathematician. Yes, I know that. Yes, right, right. Yeah, I, I'm, okay. I'm more aware of that side of things than I am about the, yeah. the use of technical analysis in markets. Um, the use, uh, the U.S. military has shot down another object. Uh, I think they probably identified it before they shot it down, to be fair, uh, in North American airspace. The third in three days, just one week after shooting down a suspected Chinese spy balloon. The US and Canadian governments are still trying to recover the three unidentified objects uh, seen floating over Alaska, Canada and Michigan this weekend. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has added six Chinese technology and aviation companies to an export blacklist over alleged connections to Chinese military surveillance programs. Well, if anyone knows anything about flying objects, unidentified or otherwise, it's almost certainly Sam who joins us now. Sam, lovely to see you. Good morning to you guys. Really enjoying your chat there. Uh, Look, yes, China has responded to this. It's not impressed, obviously, but it hasn't really said uh, too much about these blacklistings. It doesn't often do this because it maintains that this was an accident. Uh, We're talking about five companies now and also a research institute. As you mentioned, these are in the business of things like uh, aerospace, aviation, technology, and also remote sensing and electronics. Uh, What they claim to be is supporting China's military modernization 
modernization efforts, which we've really seen ramped up under President Xi Jinping, which uh, I suppose is a, a separate thread that merits pulling on in a sense that uh, that's raised a lot of questions as to why China would even use such an amateur technology like a balloon if it was pushing ahead with its uh, military modernization. But uh, the US does seem to be trying to uh, very much uh, disrupt China's use of balloons at the moment. It says that this is being used for uh, the PLA, for intelligence gathering. So this is part of uh, China's alleged surveillance program. Uh, in terms of what this is all about, this entity list, of course, this is the same one that the likes of Huawei have found themselves on, SMIC, the big Chinese chip maker. It effectively ma uh, makes it harder for these Chinese companies to get their hands on this US technology. So in order to do that, they do need to get US government authorization. So US companies that supply to these entities do need to get a license, uh, which is said to be likely to be denied. Uh, now, what's interesting as uh, one line of thought I've seen is uh, one question, certainly from the Foreign Affairs Committee, as to why it took for China to allegedly violate uh, US sovereignty for the US to take these steps against these Chinese companies when they've known for so long uh, that China is using these balloons and they're said to be linked to the PLA. But uh, perhaps uh, we will never get the answer to that. But uh, the US has said that it will not hesitate to continue to use this entity list to continue to crack down on these Chinese companies. Uh, one expert over in China has been quoted in state media as saying that this is a, an excuse really for the US to tighten the screws on these Chinese companies. Uh, China has uh, basically accused the US of uh, political point scoring here and dramatization. As I mentioned, it has maintained that this was certainly uh, an accident. Uh, but what's interesting, you know, moving forward is where this leaves the US-China relationship because all of this led to, of course, uh, Tony Blinken having to cancel his trip. He hasn't said that he's actually cancelled it altogether. He's chosen his words very carefully and that is postponed. Uh, so it does certainly uh, give some hope that the US and China are still wanting to erect these guardrails and work out ways to try to uh, manage this relationship and competition moving forward. What this balloon incident has certainly highlighted uh, is how difficult that is going to be. But as far as the markets are concerned, uh, really investors look like they're looking past the geopolitical uh, tensions at this, at this stage and really focused uh, certainly on the recovery uh, and the reopening story over in China today. Guys, back to you in London. Terrific, Sam. Thank you so much for that. Um, still to come, we take the pulse of the credit market as the Treasury yield curve sits in its longest inversion in more than 20 years. And for more market analysis, check out the Squawk Box podcast, available where you can get all good podcasts and a few of the bad ones as well. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Here's a look at how the markets are poised for the open today here. The indication is the FTSE will start the session up about 10 points, but we're still a, a few hours away from the start of the trading session, or at least over an hour or so 
away. Let's let's talk about the um, the market in bonds and credit generally. Robin Dumar joins us, managing partner at Park Square. Uh, he joins us now with a look at credit after last week's hawkish Fed speak saw investors reduce holdings in sovereign and corporate debt. Robin, nice to see you. Thanks very much for coming in. A real pleasure. Can, Thank can, you. Can can you just help us um, put? put the whole story on the map for a moment here, because we, we, we're we looking obviously now at a five-week uh, high here on the 10-year yield, three three spot seven five. We've still got a big inversion, though, the two years down at four and a half percent or thereabouts. The market now seems to be shifting to a terminal rate out at about five and a half percent. How does that fit with the way you view what's unfolding at the moment in the market? Well, I think the big story in uh, credit markets, particularly private credit, is a massive increase uh, in base rates, which really you're describing. And if we think uh, just over the last 12 months, uh, that increase is about four and a half percent in U.S. dollar terms, uh, about three and a half percent in euro terms. These are just massive increases in the cost of financing for private companies. And I think what it's producing is perhaps the most interesting investing environment in private credit that I've seen in 30 years. So take that forward for us. Explain how this is going to change the nature of how companies get funded. So if you think about our typical client and transaction, uh, it's about a 2 billion euro leverage buyout. And the private equity firm puts in typically 1 billion euros of equity and finances itself with 1 billion of debt. If we think about a rising base rate of 4% year over year, that means the additional interest burden on that company is 40 million a year, or if we put a terminal value on it, 400 million, which means on a 2 billion buyout, about 20% of value has been chewed up uh, in one year, just in the movement of rates. So that's massive. And it puts a lot of pressure on private equity and it also puts pressure on the funding markets for private credit. I think what you say is all true. I mean, the, how exciting. I mean, th- th- everything must have been correlated before because financing was so cheap and things and you could do all these. But so many companies now whose business model will probably not stand up to that kind of scrutiny from four, three to 400 basis points of increasing costs and that 40 million to $400 million worth of extra financing over the lifetime of that loan as well. So that must mean that A, valuations in some companies have become very, very enticing because that is factored in. So presumably the target companies, and we can talk about the distress as well, but the target companies, the valuations must have come off quite aggressively, haven't they? Well, interestingly, I think there's a mismatch between buyer and seller expectations right now, as you would expect. <laughs> now, there is a truism. And so uh, as a result, you're seeing a slowdown in financing and transaction activity broadly. So because a seller strike. There is a bit. Uh, we're going to start to see uh, that recovering, but a combination of a mismatch in expectations and a much more expensive credit market has meant there's a slowdown in transaction activity. And credit, I would say, we're in what I would describe as a classic lender's market, mm. where uh, we're seeing an improvement in structure, in terms, uh, and in pricing. But obviously, you don't want too much of an improvement because uh, if credit gets too expensive, that'll really slow transaction activity. So 
again, all of the above is, is totally fascinating. But presumably, um, it, it's all very well the sellers being on strike and just having a mismatch in expectations compared with the buyers. And I, I, I totally understand what you're saying there as well. But, but presumably, there's a lot more interest in picking uh, assets up out of Chapter 11, out of some form of administration, out of some form of distress, out of some form of restructuring. And I've got a friend who's in that business as well. Uh, and he's never been busier as well. So I hear what they're saying about their expectations, but a lot of them must be very, very worried about what this... How, what this looks like and, and where uh, and where their company goes without that new funding coming in. I think that uh, there will be an increase in distress. I would expect uh, default rates to increase materially over the next year or two. Uh, having said that, it really is a tale of two cities. Uh, there are uh, very high quality credits out there in stable and predictable businesses, things like healthcare, software, business services, that account for over 70% of our portfolio, I expect them to be just fine. However, consumer-facing businesses, uh, they're gonna be deeply challenged, I think, in this environment, and we will see more uh, distress. What does this, does this look anything like the tech cycle to you? The, the sort of, the years building up to 2000, where ultimately we had very similar macroeconomic headwinds building for businesses that were looking for debt finance. I think that there are elements uh, of what we're seeing that are reminiscent of the tech cycle, but I, I, I would go back to uh, really the core uh, phytoplankton level of the economic food chain. Uh, debt capital formation right now is challenged. The syndicated loan markets are challenged and disrupted. And the reason that they're challenged and disrupted is uh, collateralized loan obligations today account for 50 to 60% of the market. And there's a bit of a buyer strike on uh, the junior bits and the senior bits of those collateralized loan obligations. And so the entire food chain uh, has slowed down. And that means as a private credit investor, basically our phones are ringing off the hook because the CLOs are shut. So is it inevitable that we, we have a distress cycle I think some, at this point? I think some form of distress cycle is uh, coming, uh, but I don't think it's a broad-based cycle. I think it's going to be distress focused around specific assets and specific sectors, particularly, as I said, consumer facing businesses. Yeah, and we've spent a lot of time on this cha channel. Oh, we've spoken to Mr. Milken many times, the man who was the junk bond king originally, but we're looking at what high yield actually means. And we've been sold many pups by many purveyors of this stuff at around four or five percent over the years, telling us, oh, no, high yield, four or five percent, fantastic opportunity. To be fair, I still always raised an eyebrow at least, to say the truth, at least. Now we've got high yield trading around 8, 8.5%, having peaked at 9, 9.5% at the tail end of last year as well. I mean, in terms of a broad brush index as well. That's nowhere near the kind of peaks that high yield peaked at, both at the turn of the century and indeed in the great financial crisis. Is there another shoe to drop there? I think there could be. And I think you're exactly right to say the high yield market really should not be a spread market. I think people who think about it that way are thinking about it uh, in a wrong-headed fashion. It really should be an absolute return market because you're taking quite a bit of risk in terms of subordination in the capital structure. We think a better sort of return for junior debt uh, is a 12 to 15 percent uh, sort of return, which is what we're uh, targeting in and our junior debt funds. Kind of level, yes, right? you, yes, you, you about a good chance. Yeah. About a thousand over to me seems fair value for junior debt.
Uh, There's an uh, interesting uh, suggestion for a question in your notes. Uh, why Europe is so attractive right now vis the United States? Could you th- just uh, flesh that out for I us? I think Europe's very attractive for a variety of reasons right now. Generally, when capital markets dislocate, Europe dislocates more. And that's what we're seeing. That for the exact same credit quality, Europe is cheaper. It's a couple of points cheaper in the loan markets. The same is true of the junior debt markets. Uh, and I think... Uh, you know, the, the company performance is very, very similar. It's similar companies and similar industries. So I think it's it's very attractive on a relative value basis. Is there something, there is, well, I know the answer to this question, but I want to know how it affects your world. There is something, I won't even make it a question. There is something dysfunctional about the capital raising in Europe. It's called, we don't have CMU. We don't have capital market sophistication. The US has as well. That may have something to do with your previous answer of why Europe looks more interesting as well. But is there something institutionally that you think that the authorities in Brussels and elsewhere just can do rather than trying to go for the full hog capital markets union in the meantime to make it better for companies to raise money in Europe? I think it's really just a, a more of a market-based phenomenon and the depth. You mentioned Mike Milken and the creation of the high-yield market in the U.S. The U.S. has just been at it for longer. There are more institutional investors who've grown up around the uh, credit asset class and understand it a bit better. It's the depth of the market. There are some specific things around loan settlement, for example, where I think Europe uh, could do a better job, which is uh, I think uh, a loan can take a heck of a long time to settle here. Uh, whereas in the U.S. it's going to settle in two to three days. And I think that's that's an improvement that I'd like to see happen. Uh, and Robin, yours is a, 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 a professional viewpoint on this very specific market. But a lot of our audience is going to be a retail investing audience who've kind of been tempted to look at the alternative space and maybe private equity by just parking some money in an ETF or a fund. Any advice for those retail investors about what's potentially coming down the coming down the line? I think private assets increasingly are being offered to retail investors, and I think uh, we're at the early days of that. I think the asset class is very interesting. Um, I think my advice would be watch for fees very carefully because fees on fees on fees is something you want to avoid. Well, on, Robin, he's taking you down a path as well. And I, I, I'm going to, having had the benefit of working for this guy for over 20 years, is there something... Working with, working with I think. <laughs> Did I say four? four. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. being, being one of his deputies for the last 20 odd years. Um, is there something structurally wrong with the fact that you've got longer term assets and liabilities into a, a product that actually has got short term structure to it and short term buyers and sellers, i.e. as we've seen with properties, problems in the property sector as well? I think knowing him, I would wonder if I'm surprised if he's not going there on that one. Well, I think you're spot on to say it's very important if you're offering retail investors a particular structure uh, and promising liquidity. It's very important that you have the liquidity. Yeah, ETF market promises an awful lot, doesn't so it? So I think our structures tend to be long-dated, locked-up capital, uh, 10-year funds, 8-year funds. Uh, and I think we're very well positioned to be shock absorbers uh, in the system as a result. Um, we've never met before, have we? I don't think. But it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. And I hope it's the start of a long and fruitful relationship with Jeffrey Absolutely. and his assistant here. Uh, Robin Dumas. <laughs> Robin Dumas, managing partner of Park Square. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.